Okay, folks. Well, look, thanks for coming out on a Monday night. Uh, it's not the, the greatest night to be out and about, but hopefully we'll give you an action-packed evening. Um, so, look, the way we're going to do this is keep moving fairly quickly through the material. We'll go for about an hour, and then there'll be some question time at the end. So if people can save their questions, we'll try to get through them at the end. Okay, I guess to just sort of give you a bit of a frame and, and help you understand the how and the where and the, the what of the Murray-Darling Basin and where it is and how it works. I'm just going to sort of go through a bit of background and then we'll sort of open up the discussion with there. So you, you've got some context, you, you know where we are, where we're looking. So as you can see up behind me, there's a, a map there that pretty clearly shows where the basin is. It's got a few of the rivers marked. You can orient yourself with Sydney, Brisbane, uh, Hobart, that sort of thing. So it is a big chunk of eastern Australia um, and, you know, a fairly significant part of the country. Now, if you look at this diagram, this actually breaks it up into its catchments. So the areas that, that capture the water that flow into the different rivers. So each of those coloured sections is a, a different river that forms part of the basin and, and the tributaries all move into the main rivers of the Darling and the Murray and then they also join up as you head down towards South Australia. Now, a bit of geography. Um, over on the eastern side here is the range and then you sort of... The rivers flow west across the basin. Now, the basin's been eroding for about 65 million years uh, so it's very flat. So if you take a point um, sort of down here towards the, the ovens, Goulburn area there where that comes in, uh, and head from there down to the mouth, you'll cover about 2,000 kilometres. The mouth being over here, uh, just near Adelaide there. You'll cover 2,000 kilometres and fall about 130 metres. So it's very flat, very flat. Now if we sort of put that into... Remembering that geography, we look at the rainfall and how it spreads across the basin. So uh, the diagram over here is annual rainfall, and you can see uh, with the green and the little bit of blue down in the sort of bottom left, bottom right corner there, is where the rainfall's highest, and it drops away fairly or very significantly as you move across the basin. So as you get to where Cheryl lives, it's a lot drier over there than over here in the mountains uh, on the east, and you can see runoff is the same. So we get more runoff over here in the eastern highlands, and dropping away to very low levels, sort of 5 to 10 millimetres annual runoff as you head over there towards the west. So that sort of, I guess, gives you a feel. The water falls in the east, makes its way down the range, hits the floodplain and moves across the floodplain to the mouth. Uh, this is just a, a quick water balance picture and it basically, the areas that are brown, your annual evaporation is higher than your rainfall. The areas that are blue, your rainfall is higher than your evaporation. So you can really see that there's not a lot of the basin where there's actually more water than evaporation. So the engine room, if you like, of the basin is this blue section that you see along the edge. That's where the water largely comes from and makes its way thousands of kilometres down to the mouth. Uh, this diagram just marks those rivers in the different catchments that were in the earlier one. And the key thing to notice is the thickness of the blue lines. And that thickness uh, replicates flow. So it really gives you a picture of where the water comes from in the Murray-Darling. So, you know, you can see the Darling coming down from the north and the tributaries of the Darling up there, the Paru, the Warrigo, uh, you know, all of those rivers. They do contribute, they do have significant flows, but even the Darling line you can see gets slightly thinner as it winds its way through that dry area right down to where it meets the Murray here. The Murray is a much thicker line. There's a lot more water flowing down the Murray and the Murrumbidgee above it. Um, and they contribute probably on average, again, it's always dangerous to talk in averages with Murray-Darling and we'll see why, but on average they contribute the larger part of the flow. So I guess that gives you um, a bit of a feel for what the system's like and how the different parts come together. Now I just want to check, I'm not going to jump, oops, sorry, 
too far ahead. And so this is the hydrograph for the basin. So this is how much rainfall we get each year uh, over sort of back to 1895. So you can see it's, it's very variable. And I think the last time I gave a talk using this slide, it was in the Ashes series. And I said it's a little bit like an Australian's spirits during the Ashes. A couple of ups, but lots of downs. And uh, it's still doing that. So you can see years, very low flows, and then you get these years where you get real anomalies and get big flows. So it's a highly variable system. Always has been. Always probably will be. As we know. So what does this mean? How does that work? Well, what happens is you have times when the system is really dry. And that's how it's meant to be. So you know, pre-European involvement, the system in parts may have dried up to a sort of chain of pools or very low flow. And what happens on the floodplain at those times is you get the vegetation sort of dropping material, leaves and bark, and that's falling across the huge floodplain that surrounds these rivers because it's so flat. And that builds up. And it's composting over time, just like you might compost in your own backyard, and it's breaking down that organic material and making the carbon and the nutrients much more available. Now, what happens, of course, when you hit, you know, the wet times, hit one of these extremes, you get huge rainfalls. They generally fall up in the eastern ranges. That comes thundering down the range, and, of course, it hits the river channel, uh, these old flat river channels, and the channel can't hold it. The water overpowers the channel and moves out onto the floodplain. And as it moves out onto the floodplain, it picks up all that material that's been decomposing and it injects life into the floodplain. So the ecosystems, fish, birds, all use the floodplain for their breeding. So it triggers life. But really critically as well, it brings material back into the river system and it recharges the aquifers as well. And the aquifers are the water that sort of is underneath uh, the ground that's making its way to the river much more slowly. And they're really important because the red gums and the the black box use those to actually survive through the dry time. So it recharges those aquifers and it moves back to the river. So 70% almost, I think, gets its way back to the river and brings that material back in. And that feeds the river. That's how the river lives, is that interaction between floodplain and channel. And it keeps doing that all the way down the system. And so that's why we see the, the floods that we've seen recently, they're big, they're slow moving. It takes sort of months for a flood peak to make its way, say, down from Queensland uh, through the Darling and down to the mouth, and even the Murray and Murrumbidgee floods we've seen take quite some time. So it's a, it's a very slow-moving and variable system. Dry is just as important as wet, and the alternation of those things are critical to the, the long-term health. Now, just to sort of, I guess, illustrate that, here's a photo taken down on the Chowell floodplain, which is just across the border into South Australia, so it's getting down towards uh, the end of the system. And as you can see, it is very dry. Uh, this, one, I think, was in the drought. And just sort of to use as a point of reference, there's a white peg there, uh, but you probably won't see that. But see there's a bit of mistletoe in a kind of bed over branch up there, uh, and the mistletoe's out here at the end. Just use that as your reference. You can see the material on the floodplain building up, and you can also see it in this runner channel there. Uh, now, uh, I think they had some rain, a small event, so you'll get smaller flows. Not every flow is a big flow. Uh, it's really critical that you get these small and the medium-sized flows coming through the river, not just the big ones. So you can see this has moved through the runner. You can see the, what it's done. The vegetation's uh, fairly rapidly come back. It hasn't probably pulled all this stuff off the floodplain here. And there's your mistletoe and the sort of curved branch that are your reference points there. Uh, this sort of shows how it was when that water went away and the vegetation's uh, coming back and you've got some vegetation down there in the bottom of the stream. And this shows what it was like in February 2011 when I went down there. So 
This was uh, when the big floods went through and it's water right across the floodplain. There's your missile tail sort of falling out, but there's your curved branch, which is your reference. And we were able to go across the floodplain in the boat the whole way. So it was just like a massive water wonderland. Uh, so that's the, that's the variability of this system. That's how it changes. Um, and this is how we got involved. So I guess these lines show how irrigation has grown from sort of the 1920s with a big push in the 50s and 60s as we build our dams and governments encourage people to go out and set up irrigation and uh, set up their families out there and build industries. Um, and that continues sort of right on right through the 80s and the 90s. I think governments were still really encouraging people to go out there and, and you know, build towns, build industries, uh, build irrigation communities. Uh, in the 90s, uh, we realised that this was causing damage. We were actually taking... You know, getting more and more water, it was just being given away quite easily. And you can see the dotted line up the top is the average natural flow to the sea, and we were heading you know, fairly quickly to getting up to similar sort of levels to what we'd seen as the average to the sea long term. At that point, uh, a cap on extractions was brought in, uh, and that cap was that we had to cap at, I think, 93, 94 levels. And so that was sort of... Everyone agreed this is as high as we go. And that cap on extractions at the moment is about 11,500 gigalitres. So um, every year, on average, we can extract, or all different users can extract. Probably the biggest, well, the biggest extraction is for irrigation, but it's also for towns and whatever else. But we can extract about 11,500 gigalitres. So I guess that's a quick background and will be our starting point uh, for the discussion tonight. I'm just going to lay out a couple of... Uh, piece of material that can be our, I guess, timeline so that um, everyone can hang on in there and understand where we are. So I'm going to start the timeline back here at sort of 2007-2008 and that's when the Water Act uh, came in. We then move through uh, and our discussion will start there and move through. This is the guide to the draft basin plan and that came out uh, towards the end of 2010 and then this is the draft basin plan and we'll put it over here and that's 2011. So there's your timeline starting in 2007 to 2011 and on. And I'm going to use John's hat as our time marker. So let's head back to 2007. And we're back in 2007. Uh, and let's start the discussion there. So we're basically going to, I guess, move through this relatively quickly uh, in sort of 10 minute blocks. I'm going to be pretty strict with these guys. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how we go. So, Brendan, why don't you start us off? What was happening back in 2007? What we've got there in 2007 is the Water Act, the Commonwealth Water Act, Commonwealth legislation. I might actually have to take you back a little bit further than 2007 here, too, Tim, to give you a bit of context, because this is the Water Act 2007 is the first time the Commonwealth, in a legislative way, got involved in the management of the Murray-Darling Basin. The constitutional background to this is that, um, as a federation, Commonwealth of Australia, its states, so uh, in the instance of the Murray-Darling Basin, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, also Queensland and ACT, who have the principal constitutional responsibility for natural resource management. And that's been the model that's been in place since 1901, since we federated. Not without its controversies and not without threats of litigation and so forth, but a cooperative system of managing the basin that was quite successful, enormously successful really, I suppose, in terms of developing regional economies, developing the irrigation industry and so forth. When we get to that point you talked about in the early 90s with the cap and so forth, and the idea that actually we've overshot here, we've gone a bit far, you start to see that cooperative consensus space more reaching its limits, I suppose. That then plays out through um, the cap process, various things around that, a, a 
national plan that all states and the Commonwealth signed up to in the um, early 2000s, the National Water Initiative. Failure to progress that then leads to increasing frustrations. And then you have in 2007 this extraordinary step of John Howard, the then Prime Minister, saying, well, I'm going to intervene here. This requires some strong national leadership in the form of legislation, for a start, but also in the form of $10 billion, specifically round figure, perhaps. But John Howard, in the context of uh, those continuing failures to meet environmental objectives uh, and resource security objectives, as well as in the context of a prolonged and very serious drought, basically muscling in and saying, well, the Commonwealth is going to exert its authority here. We're going to pass this Water Act 2007. And what that does is to basically to provide a framework for what's called the Basin Plan, the development of a Basin Plan. We'll come to talking about that a bit further. Cheryl, uh, what were your thoughts, I guess, at the time about the National Water Initiative that Brendan highlighted, and then the Act? Was it a positive time? Um, from an irrigation community point of view, uh, water reform's been something that's been happening to us for, for many, many years. And in 2004, the National Water Initiative was really a cooperative agreement between the states to to set in play a number of things um, with water. And, of course, the drought really did start in the 2000s, so for the communities out there with the farming, there was a lot of pressure on our sector um, that we, we were deemed or seen to be taking too much water. And prior to, to the Water Act coming in, there had been a, a long process within the states to set up water sharing plans where... A lot of time had been spent with irrigation communities and, for example, in mine, um, they actually took 3% of our water away in that water sharing plan process, which was absolutely agreed without compensation because of that recognition to to take something back. So instead of getting 100% allocation, we were only going to get 97% and that was agreed. So there's been many steps taken, I guess, for a long time frame to, to really recognise um, the changes that are required in water reform. But as an irrigator, and, and Tim talked about, um, you know, we're biggest consumptive users, but the basin is very complex and there are a number of cities that actually derive their water, so it is giving fresh water to a number of people. And the environment itself does receive um, a significant amount of natural flows through the system, so, you know, nearly two-thirds of the water is, was going to the environment through just the running of the rivers before the Act came into play. For us... Um, it, it's good to see the Act coming in and John Howard's statement that it was at a time of critical drought and that continued on for a number of years after that Act came in. So, you know, very desperate times in, in many communities. Um, but it, it came with a, in with a promise and, and Irrigator spent a lot of time trying to get this Act right as well about balancing the three economic and social um, and environmental issues. And I guess when the Act came into play for us, um, it men mentioned irrigation and production about three times and the environment many more times so it's been trying to work out the balance and we want this healthy working river and this is really a starting point of trying to get greater cooperation between the states which I think every irrigation community would value for that to happen well so it was a starting point um, with much more to come of course. John your thoughts at the time? Well you're a young boy then. Yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes we'll see the National Water Initiative flowed out of the cap process and a recognition that we really did need a different approach to water reform. And the National Water Initiative and the establishment uh, in the Act, in the, the 2007 Act, was actually trying to put teeth to the actual 
National Water Initiative because it was put in place but there seemed to be a very slow process of actually picking up that Cohague agreement and that's why I believe one of the reasons why John Howard said in February that he was going to move. The important thing about that, in that period from 94 onwards up to the NWI, there were a lot of reforms actually happening, as Cheryl said, in the, in the water thing that was important. One of them was the development of water trading. And probably the most important thing that I think we need to keep in mind, up until that point in the implementation of the NW National Water Initiative, water is owned essentially by the Crown or the Common. And what was agreed to do, and I know Peter Cullen and I who actually argued for turning water licences into tradable entities and property rights, was that we'd be transferring something of the order of $27 billion or $30 billion worth of water into the private sector from public sector. Now it was a tradable entity, something that would at least uh, be something that had a really big effect because it meant that it was done because it was a mechanism that was likely to explore how would you bring ourselves uh, back to a healthy river system. We needed some mechanisms. So if the actual water then could be bought back from the irrigator after being given to the irrigator or the town or the other user, then there would be some sense of social justice in the whole transaction. The agreement of making the water a fact of a private property right the quid pro quo for that was to return water to the environment. And we need to, to continually remind ourselves that's the social contract that we're trying to work through. I think that's a really accurate characterisation, John. And I think one of the things to remember with the Water Act is that there's those sort of core principles in the National Water Initiative and a key objective of returning over-allocated systems to sustainability. Uh, and that flows through. We don't use a lot of water, sort of waterish puns today. But that flows through into the Water Act. It was a key objective of the Water Act and the Basin Plan. So there's that, there's that um, sense that you can trace back most of the sort of key principles in the Water Act to the things that had already been agreed to as important under the National Water Initiative and so forth. And where you find a clean break is in, um, sort of a fancy term I suppose, but the institutional arrangements, setting up a Murray-Darling Basin Authority as an independent authority, a scientific-based governance organisation that would take the lead in the basin rather than the sort of previous system of governance, which is far more the sort of cooperative, consensus-based approach that Cheryl described earlier. So that's, I think, the key thing about the Water Act. A legislative framework at the Commonwealth level, that's new. There's several other new features as well, like an integrated treatment of groundwater and so forth. But the key thing is this attempt to say, well, what, we need to set up a, an expertise-based, independent of government, Murray-Darling Basin Authority that will follow the science, that will implement the science in developing a basin plan. It'll sort of break that deadlock that we've never quite been able to break. With but Brendan, there was another important uh, governance issue that the establishment of the National Water Commission was set up to actually audit the progress on the National Water Initiative. And I think that's been a terribly important mechanism to actually make sure we've done our sums on, 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 on the knowledge and the science behind the reform. So in many ways, Australia was very pioneering in putting in place markets, a governance structure that um, allowed us to actually have an independent body do the sums and make sure the science was transparent and open and, and, and understood and then have a body that actually tracked progress. All right, folks, time and tide waits for no man. <laughs> so we had the National Water Initiative and the Act. We had the $10 billion from John Howard as Prime Minister. 
We had a new Labor government and they committed uh, to the $10 billion plus some more. Why not? Let's ramp it up. So we went up to $12 billion for the whole program, but 9, 8.9 of that 12 was for Murray-Darling Basin reform. $8.9 billion, just get your head around that number. Billion. Uh, I think it's $8,900 million chunks. I think of a million dollars and it seems like almost incomprehensible to me. We've got 8,900 of those to fix this problem. Okay, the guide. It's the end of 2010. The guide's come out. And it's probably where, I guess, for a lot of people, it's their first engagement. For a lot of people that don't live in the basin particularly, it's their first engagement in some ways with water reform. Suddenly there's something that's on the news, it's in your face. Uh, Cheryl, you were probably down there and had front row seats. Uh, How did it go? Definitely front row seats. I think it was um, one of the worst examples I've seen in Australian history of um, taking something to the community in in a very ill-informed way. It frankly scared probably every person who lives in the Murray-Darling Basin because a document came out, they were out in the community espousing a very large amount of water to be potentially removed for the environment from from businesses and livelihoods. Okay, it just wasn't explained well. So the guide, uh, when it came out, it said, okay, we need to look at a range, a yep. volume range, and the lower end of that range is about 3,856 gigalitres. So basically what we're saying there is currently the cap on how much we can take out is 11,500 we think, or the guy thought, that that needed to be reduced by 3,856, plus some other bits and bobs that were in there that yeah. added up to about 800. And they had a range up to 7,000 Exactly, well. so, so that range went right up to 7,000. So they range. sort of said high risk was, if, you know, high risk of achieving the environmental objectives that we set, and those objectives were around simply maintaining the environmental floodplains and wetlands and estuary and mouth in the condition as it is, so we're not getting anything back. Those targets are just maintaining as is and improving their conditions. So they're fairly conservative targets. And they've said 3856 taken off that 11500 is high risk of achieving those outcomes and 7600 off the 11500 is low risk. So that was the range that they were playing. So they had a very large range and, of course, that... Um resonated with communities in that they thought they were going to lose a lot of water that may be taken away from them, and that's since been dealt with, that it's a voluntary buyback from the government. Tim talked about the 10 billion, there's over 3 billion put aside to actually purchase water back from consumptive use, and 5.8 for irrigation infrastructure within that 10 billion. Um, But Unfortunately, they, they didn't come out and really explain um, the assumptions and what was what the guide was about. They didn't have you know, we're very practical people out on the land. We want to understand a plan. We want to know that there's a plan there and we want to know if the environmental assets exactly how much water they might need, roughly when they might need it, um, can there be other ways we look at it and if we are going to lose a lot of water, which which in some circumstances communities will, is there a plan to actually help those communities adjust? Because we ran the high range, for example, in my area, and that was going to take about 50, uh, well, between 35 and 40% of perhaps the productive type water, which means jobs and people. So that's come down significantly in the next stage, which we'll get to. But it was still very, very scary for, for you know people to understand. And a lot of scientific information, and I know I'm surrounded by scientists tonight, but you know, we do have to bring that to people if it's affecting their lives and their children's lives and, and that fear. And it mobilised 20,000 people to attend public meetings across the basin. 
um, which has never been heard of before on any issue. So this this is an issue of significance. Um, and you know, we're taught we want to meet with the environmentalists, and we and we can get that common ground. And I think that's you know, sessions um, that have happened since are sort of moving us towards that common ground. But to just unleash that in the way it was was very frightening. John, what did you think of the science of that document? Well, I think the guide put the science down that says that if you want a high high level of likelihood of success, you need a lot of water, and if you are prepared to accept a low level of a likelihood of success, then the 3,800 euglitres will get you there. But basically, the science was where you're actually looking at the system uh, from the flow through the whole system. It was an analysis of, of the bottom of the system, and I think we basically felt the science was a pretty good uh, approach from the beginning. And certainly, there's been no evidence that there was any science in that report that has been in error. Uh, there's no, no evidence at all. In fact, um, that's, that's what happened. The thing that I think was important, uh, Tim, and that I think we need, as an old bloke, I can say that we started with the Living Murray program and the sort of conversation that we had with communities uh, from the science that was required, we said we needed to just do the Murray sites. We needed 3,000 gigalitres to be sure we could do something. But with all the conversations, we never we went down to the lowest common denominator, which was the 5,000, 500 gigalitres. And I don't think we've really been as uh, absolute... I don't think governments and community consultation has been such that there's been an honest conversation before that hit the ground. The, because when I did the red gum study and said, look, to water the red gums in the Millwara and um, uh, areas in the mid-Murray, we needed probably 1,200 gigalitres. And it's not hard to do the sums. Just take the area and multiply it by that depth, you'll get the volume, and it's about 1,200 gigalitres. So the numbers that were in public conversation, I think, were deceiving. And the way it was done is that the paperwork, Cheryl, if you look at it, was always, we want this many megalitres a day for this many days. And until you multiply the number together, you don't get the volume. But if you do multiply the number together, if you want 45 days at at 45,000 megalitres a day at Yarrawonga Weir, well, you're going to have gigalitres of water, thousands of gigalitres. But there was a deception... I don't think intentionally necessary, although I'm not sure. There was a lot of weasel words around the conversation. And therefore, when they hit the table, it, 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 it really didn't have any preparation for it. OK. Uh, move us along, John. Brendan, I might save you till we get to the legal action of the plan as it stands. Um, look, I guess, just for me to throw in here, really, this water... You're supposed to be asking the questions, so the answers. John, I get lucky and I ask myself one every now and then. Uh, this water, uh, basically, I think we just need to clear up. It's not to run down the river every day. So it's not to have a full river all the time. And that's not why we need water for the environment. When we built the dams, what we were very effective at was taking out the small and medium-sized floods that wet the floodplain. So the big floods still happen, and they will still happen, and we've just seen them now. Um, but what we took out were those small and medium-sized. So what you saw was floodplains that maybe had got watered every three to five years were now pushing out to eight to 10 to 15 years between waterings. And that was the problem. We didn't have those small and medium-sized events in the system anymore. And that's why we needed water that was held for the environment. And it wasn't to make those events from scratch. It was simply to try to, uh, when we had a rainfall event in the basin and there was a, a little peaking flow, to add some water to the top of that peak to push the water out onto the floodplain. Because it's no good if we just run it down the channel. 
looks like we've got a full river, we don't actually have a healthy river. It's not talking to its floodplain, it's not feeding off its floodplain. So the idea with that environment water is to use it at the strategic times. You might use it once every two years, you might use it, who knows when you'll use it, but the modelling that the authority does and did was aimed at trying to say how do we get those peaks up and over and how do we keep them on the floodplain for long enough for the ecosystems to actually have the events they need to have. So birds breeding, they need water on the floodplain for you know, a number of weeks or months. They're not going to get it over and done in an evening. So uh, it's all about augmenting those flows and that's what this, this water was required and, and needed for from the guide. Now, time and tide moves us forward. Sorry, Brendan, but I'm just going to push us through to this time in between the guide and the draft because there was a really significant change in things. So we saw the reaction to the, the guide when it came out at the end of 2010 and there were copies of it burnt. I managed to save that one. Uh, all sorts of things happened. There was a big, uh, a very strong reaction right across the basin from different groups of people. And I guess that challenged government. And in the following February... Uh, John and I were at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and we were told that the authority had now decided that the number they would be looking at and going forward with was 2,800 gigalitres. So in the October of the year before, it had been minimum 3,856 as calculated by the science and we were seeing in a few short months a reduction of over 1,000 gigalitres, which we were shocked at and our, uh, I guess, message to the authority at that point in time was, guys, this is huge. You really need to get the science peer-reviewed on this. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this will be a process that's decided by the parliament on a draft plan, and that's a political process. But it's critical that you get good, clear, robust science into that process so that everyone, uh, engineer, irrigator, anyone in the basin, anyone in Australia, can understand what are we getting for this reform? What are we getting for the $8.9 billion? What are we getting for the water we're putting back? And what aren't we getting if we're not going to do the job properly? And understand is that value for money? Quentin Grafton, uh, an economist at ANU, or he, he is... Uh, still is. Still is, yeah. Quentin worked out uh, that for $6.5 billion, so 6 dollars you could actually buy all the water we needed back, so the 3,856 gigalitres, you could buy that in the market. Uh, and there was ample sort of demand uh, when the first tenders went out to get that water back. And then if you spend six and a half, you've got 8.9, you've still got quite a lot of money in the billions of dollars to actually help a lot of the things Cheryl identified that would be impacts from this water change. And again, if you think back to that flow diagram, the water is in some really uh, focused areas. You know, there were reductions across the basin, but there were some real catchments that were really going to feel it. And within those catchments, it's not every town, it's, you know, certain areas, yes, the impacts are going to be significant, other areas less. With, you know, two, three billion dollars and some wise investment, Wentworth saw a lot of opportunity and that's what we were trying to uh, get across. It was a great opportunity. This was probably the only time we are going to see $8.9 billion injected into the Murray-Darling Basin and it was a great opportunity to use it. Cheryl, what was your experience at that time, sort of, post-guide, pre-draft? Um, obviously a lot of political toing and froing, and we actually had Tony Windsor, one of the independents, lead a uh, committee through the basin and probably doing a better consultation process than the MDBA did when releasing the guide and, and actually came and talked to communities in a much more rational sort of measure and, and went back to Parliament with some recommendations to 
to look at ways of doing things and, and one of the ways that they highlighted was let's look at some alternative solutions and yes we want to get some more water to the environment, can we do that in, in different ways and put in some new infrastructure and Tim's talking about floodplain and those big floods, the floodplain will go under anyway but in some of the smaller floods can we use you know our engineering brains and, and get the water into those environmental assets and and um, can we use there's some very I guess rules that have been around for a long time in the basin between the states as to how they run the river can we actually reevaluate those rules and make make it um, better and more efficient to run the rivers because we have a working river we've got dams all through the river system where we store water it's released to deal with um, demand periods so can we set that up in a more sensible way rather than reducing water out of consumption and production and, and food production, the things that really we care about. Um, it was very unsettled, you know, they, they tipped out a chairman of the MDBA in that time, um, you know, uh, the CEO went, so, you know, that, that, I guess, public push was really saying, you know, we're not prepared to accept what's put here. There are going to have to be trade-offs made. We do have to consider the three things, and it is people, environment um, as well, so, and Let's get that socio-economic data as well as the environmental data, and I think you know some of that data is still not in place that would satisfy people. You know, they talk about impacts in my community. Well, no one's come and said if I lose X water, how much, how many jobs will that mean for my exact community? They've they've set it out of base and wide. You know, there might be only a few job losses in the scheme of things, but some communities will have quite significant job losses potentially and they need to understand that before these decisions can go. So I think there was a lot more work done in that time period to try and give that technical level of detail and do the social economic work. So still still not happy but, but we're All getting right. a bit closer. Right, easy, easy. <laughs> right Brandon? Thank you. The brown hat is at a critical juncture really in, mm-hmm. in terms of where we're at now, what we've, what we've ended up with with the um, uh, draft basin plan which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, I agree with what Cheryl was saying before about the Authorities' handling of the of the um, of the guide, uh, it was handled really poorly. In fact, I mean, one of my colleagues, Paul Sinclair of the Australian Conservation Foundation, describes it as you know, watching someone slowly walking into a metal fan. It was really disastrously handled, and I think the real failure of leadership, I suppose, as well, at the, the authority in the sense of not consulting properly and so forth. Also, uh, and from a lawyer's perspective, this was really worrying. I suppose the the chair of the authority saying, "Well, don't blame me, blame the app." It's just hopeless. A bad workman being blamed his tools. There was no advocacy around the science or what the what the plan was supposed to be doing and so forth. A failure to, I think, at the level of political leadership in the sense that the government ought to have been out there saying, well, that's the science, that's the, the plan, that's what we're proposing or what they're proposing in terms of diversion limits and so forth. But it's part of a much bigger package. Um, the, the, all this money, it's a part of a, a whole restructuring, I suppose, that ought to be happening across um, the Murray-Darling Basin as well. But I'm sort of silent on that too. What happens then is the vacuum gets filled with burning. Uh, it gets filled with, I think, a very unhelpful, sterile debate around we ought to have equally weighted consideration of social, environmental and economic uh, in the basin plan. Sounds good when, until you start actually thinking about how you might actually apply that in practice. Maybe we'll get to come to that a bit more in a moment. Um, you have a change in leadership at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority as well. And I think a change in emphasis where the science really has become the victim, I suppose, of, of how things have panned out since then in the sense that you now have uh, an authority, I think, where the overwhelming emphasis is getting the job done, uh, and they've done that uh, at some violence, I suppose, to some of the key principles in the Water Act that come from the National Water Initiative, the process we were describing before, and um, from my reading of the scientific evidence and the scientific analysis that's out there as well, at great expense to the sort of scientific integrity that was foreshadowed in the proposed plan too. John, any 
quick views well, on that nice time. To, it's nice to have a lawyer defend the science, so I won't say anything. <laughs> the tragedy is that, that the, in, in that period when we asked, and the, both academies asked, that we'll, look, let's, let's have a look at what the science says and, 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 and have it properly reviewed, and it, they didn't do that. Um, so I feel that really that's the, the issue. I have no problem at all with a society, a democratic society, making a call on what it does with rivers. It can decide to have rivers in very poor health, if that's the choice. But I'd like to see that science says, and our best knowledge is, that if you want a high likelihood of success, then you need a water regime like this, which has a long-term mean of this many gigalitres. And so it is a matter of translating that and, and, and doing that. And that's been... A failure because now you've got the guide which says a big number like this, and then you've got another number being put on the table with, in my judgment, absolutely no defence that can be made on scientific grounds. Okay, let's tick the time along. Thank you, John. So, time is moving on, and we are getting fairly concerned. And then, of course, towards the end of 2011, uh, out comes the draft plan. Now, I'll go through a few highlights. Uh, the authority, I guess after a lot of prompting and uh, prodding on the science, decided they would get a scientific review done of some of the science. Uh, it was a very narrow and focused review done by a CSIRO and a number of other scientists that they'd brought together. And unfortunately for the authority, their very own scientific review uh, concluded that they didn't meet the majority of targets. So just remember those targets are fairly conservative targets about... Uh, maintaining and improving the condition of what we have left as far as assets along the river system. Uh, so I guess that was the first concern. The second concern was the volumes uh, had gone down from minimum 3856 to this 2750 number. There was very little justification for why that had been chosen, uh, but it had, and we needed to live with it. We knew it had been chosen back in February, so it was very interesting. The, I guess the reason that the authority put forward why that was the right number, uh, even though it wasn't going to deliver on the targets that had been set, but it was the right number because we had a lot of constraints in the system. Now, constraints could be anything from a bridge that the authority didn't want to flood, uh, to Shepparton, which suddenly has appeared to be on every river system in the basin, whenever you ask them what's the constraint here of Shepparton. Um, Shepparton, uh, flooding someone's private land, so you the authority didn't want to flood a farmer's wheat field. Uh, they were worried about the repercussions of that. And they even extended to rules. So there's a range of rules around the system about how you deliver irrigation water. Uh, and they're aimed at keeping the water in the channel so that the delivery is done as efficiently as possible. Uh, and the irrigator that's ordered their water from the dam way upstream actually gets as much water or as much of that water as they can. But those rules were applied to environmental water, um, which, of course, we do want to get onto the floodplain. So it was a very sort of strange time that there was all, this, uh, all these constraints. I also found it very interesting, and I, if I was a bookie I would have been concerned, that so far ahead of time the board had been able to predict that that number would be what would come out the end of their models uh, about seven or eight months later with all these constraints in the system. But at interesting times. The other thing I guess that the uh, draft had, which was a bit of a shock, was the guide had said for groundwater, if we want to get back to sustainable groundwater, and groundwater is connected to your surface water, uh, they're sort of either recharging that way or draining that way at a much slower rate. Uh, if we want to get back to sustainable levels of groundwater, we need to reduce extractions by about 160 gigalitres across the basin. That's what was in the guide. 
The draft said, actually, we think we'll increase them by 2,600 gigalitres. So it was saying, on one hand, we're going to pay $8.9 billion, well, you are going to pay $8.9 billion to put 2,750 gigalitres of water back into the river. And at the same time, we've decided we're going to pop away 2,600 gigalitres, but don't worry. It's all deep, salty water that's not connected to anything. Now, A, who's going to use all that deep, salty water? It's an industry that needs that sort of thing. Um, but also about half of that water isn't deep, salty. It's fresh. And it provides a lot of the base flow that drives the river systems um, that come right across the Murray-Darling Basin. So whether you're an environmental site or you're an irrigator or anyone, a town, Adelaide, whoever, if you take water from the system, if you have an entitlement take water from the system, if you increase the extraction of the groundwater by you know, 1,300 gigalitres of fresh stuff, you're going to see that. You're going to see your entitlement not being what it once was. Because they're trying to, as John puts it, and I'll quote him here, sell the dog twice. So I guess you know, they were just some initial concerns with the draft. Uh, I'll go to John first and then we might come to Cheryl and then Brendan. Well, you, you've outlined the major ones. What I felt was that the draft didn't establish a scientific basis for what the river needs. And that's a fundamental flaw that means, in my judgement, and Brendan will comment on this, Cheryl, that's, that's the first thing it needs to do, is establish a strong scientific base of what the, the river needs. Then I'd like to see a plan that actually had a plan in it, that actually said, well, how are we going to meet these issues? We're spending $10 billion but if we can't flood a bridge that it costs 500000 to fix, then where's the plan to actually learn how to deal with that, those matters to be able to bring the river into some function? But more importantly, the plan needs to be a whole of government, recommending to government a whole of way forward to deal with the social disruption and, and damage that that's all the cause. And we don't see how you're going to do that in the plan. So it doesn't give the science basis for the... For the, for the water requirements, doesn't deal with a plan that actually tells us how we're actually going to manage the constraints and the difficult issues and then drops the groundwater in and a few other things without any scientific basis. But equally importantly, probably more importantly, it doesn't to me, it fails to give any vision and direction to how to manage the people and the place and the more virulent and uh, uh, you know, resilient future for communities. Cheryl? Well, I think that raises a whole heap of common ground issues. You know, one, we want our resilient regional economies. We're extremely important. Um, we don't want to flood people out. We've seen the devastating floods that have taken place in eastern Australia in the last couple of years, and there are valid system constraints that need to be considered, and they do need to work around those. So, you know, personal property, and none of you want your houses flooded, and farmers don't necessarily want their places of um, housing and livelihoods flooded either, so we do need to take that into account. People do live in the basin. Um, in terms of the number, I think it's a lot less clear because they've left what they call a floating number, which is supposed to be a contributed amount from each ba basin, so each sort of valley within the basin. So, you know, for me out there, we've had this whole... Um, investment cycle stopped for a number of years. So banks don't want to invest in us. Um, our house values have fallen. And um, 
Well, then there's been a whole heap of people have moved away because I just don't see that security and certainty in their future. And so this, at the moment, still has this floating number of they're not sure where that water's going to come from in the buyback process. So it does make it difficult for, for people to, to live and invest in the communities at the moment. That's been a real unfortunate side effect of this process, which is 2007 here and we're 2012 and we've had that 10-year horrible drought that took out a lot of people as well. Have you got the full story though, Cheryl? Do you feel it's playing um, you any story or does it just give the you story, one The story's not there and, and exactly what John said, there's not an environmental water plan. We've never been comfortable with a number, whether it's 2,750 or 7,000 because we're looking for outcomes. It's not just about water down the river. Where we are, we've had a massive explosion of carp. You know, millions and millions of tiny little carp. Now, they're a pest in their own right. We've got vegetation issues. You know, for us, we want a whole-of-catchment approach where we're looking at everything that's happening in the river. We want a whole-of-government approach. We've got state and Commonwealth government coming together with our local government and, the you know, the regional development people, so we do have some solutions for the future. Um, it's not in there. There's not an environmental watering plan in there. They've conveniently said, we'll go to the states. They're going to have to establish that and... Um, with probably not very many resources to do it. So where do the resources come to roll this plan out? Um, so at the moment, you know, this is this is still up in the air. My greatest fear is that it's a political solution. We've got to get something through Parliament by the end of this year. Um, this is supposed to come into play or come into implementation 2019. So they are giving us a bit of implementation time, but. You know, the science does need to be worked through. We should have people out on the ground now looking at this flooded country. You know, in my area, the bird life's back, the, the frogs are back, back. This, the environment's been amazingly resilient. I can't say the same for many of our people, but what I've seen is, you know, the rivers are running, it's gorgeous, but we should be making the most of that time to say, OK, we've got a lot of water, the natural flood events have occurred. Let's get the science around that to make sure we've can get the next one right where we have to ma manufacture it a little bit more when we, we are in the dry cycle. So, well, I'll move to um, Brendan and then we'll sort of tick-tack on a few questions. Yeah. Uh, well, Tim, we've looked at this from a legal perspective, I suppose, and then picking up the scientific critique from Wentworth, CSIRO, Coiner Institute and so forth, so well, how, how, where have they gone wrong, I suppose? And I think there's a number of uh, points at which you can say that, for instance, they've adopted an overly cavalier approach to groundwater rather than the precautionary approach that was required of them, contrary to the Act. They've um, uh, basically ignored climate change, I suppose, in a sort of complex sort of way, but that, once again, was completely contrary to the Act as well. One of the big things with this Act was that it was going to be a way that we actually started taking climate change and its effect on the availability of the resource and water in the basin seriously. Haven't done that contrary to the Act. One of the, the key sort of central things, I think, is that what the Act does is to say, well, uh, we need to, as a priority, reduce over-allocation, get back to sustainability in terms of extraction levels. The way it does that is to pick up some of that stuff from the National Water Initiative uh, based around what an environmentally sustainable level of extraction will take is. So the Act has a definition of environmentally sustainable level of um, extraction, um, basically a level of extraction that won't compromise key environmental assets, ecological processes, and the productive base of the resource as well. Uh, it then says that having determined that, the sustainable diversion limit, which is really the centrepiece of the basin plan, has to reflect that. Um, environmentally sustainable level of take. So there's, a, there's a, I suppose, a process there by which you reach this sort of key figure of the sustainable diversion, the central feature of the basin plan. I think you characterised it accurately and that what seems to have been done is that the basin authority has picked a figure they hope that they could do the political selling and then work back from that. So the whole idea of that, that process of determining that 
environmentally sustainable level of take, um, a, a sustainable future for the basin, really, I suppose, has been abandoned in the process. That's the biggest problem, I think, with the, with the draft plan as it's, as it's now out there. Um, and nothing I've heard from the authority in terms of their defence of the process that they've pursued or their explanation of the science and so forth it indicates anything differently. I think, I mean, we've put out that legal analysis, other people have put out a legal analysis as well, but the, um, the authorities seem fit to put the Wentworth Group up, up on the Mythbusters section of their website, but we're not there. They're not, they're not grappling, us with, uh, grappling with us on that, and I think that's because they understand that that analysis is correct. They've, they've, they've put the, the, the legal framework by the side, I suppose. Now, you might just say that's a, a lawyer who gets concerned about the law and so forth, it doesn't really matter. I say it matters a lot, because what... What we're attempting to do here, it seems to me, is to put in place the, a good institutional framework, a good legal framework, not just to deal with the next few years, but to deal with a long-term future for the basin. Um, and if you start undermining that right from the very beginning, um, then you don't have a good, robust, independent, scientifically-based institutional framework. It's not going to do the job. Mm. So that, when there's a number, there's, there's um, the science and so forth, there's that, there's that very important institutional framework question sits behind all this as well, and I think everyone ought to be really concerned about that. Well, there's a number of people saying they will legally challenge at that number. And mm. That's of great concern, because no one wants this to be tied up in the law courts for a number yeah. of years. Yeah. All right, uh, just let me throw something. We've got a few more minutes to play around, and then we'll, we'll head into questions. But uh, I guess, you know, um, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm not sort of into ducks on ponds. Uh, and I guess for me, you know, this is and always has been about getting a, a working Murray-Darling Basin that just functions at the level so we can have long-term irrigation, long-term environmental assets, you know, all of those pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, ideally what we, I think, would all like to see out of this process is a very transparent piece of work on the science of here's a range of different volumes and here's the outcomes we think will come from these volumes. Now, of course, no-one knows and we haven't used water to water the environment before, so it will be a learning curve. There will be mistakes, just like if you gave a farmer who'd never irrigated before a load of irrigation water and said, go and do that, he'd probably be doing a different thing in five years' time from what he would do in the first year. You do and you learn, and that is going to happen on this. But we would like to see consistent science that says, at 2,000, this is what you get. At three, this is what you get. This is what you lose. At four, this is what you get. This is what you lose. And there's a, a number of international conventions that have drive, driven the Commonwealth involvement in this process, and yet the Basin Plan doesn't actually tell us if we're going to succeed and deliver those conventions or not. So are we going to be um, you know, the second nation after Iraq under Saddam Hussein to actually not deliver on our uh, Ramsar Convention? And at the moment it looks like maybe we are with 2750, but the authority hasn't clearly articulated that. But I guess, I, you know, Cheryl, would just sort of be interested to see, I mean... If the science goes up and good socioeconomic, then our parliament, who ultimately decides on this, can hopefully make an informed decision. Then that decision might come down at 1,000 kilolitres, it might come down at two, it might come down at five. But that's democracy. That's what we're all signed up for, and that's the process. And if that happened, I think, you know, it may not be what I see as being needed for a river. It may not be what Cheryl or John or Brendan sees, but it's what society sees, and we have to live with that. Um, we're a long way off that, I feel, and I think we'd all agree. But Cheryl, if we did have to go for, for 3,856, how would we do it? Or, or a volume in that range? You know, could, we, could we do something with the money we've got? Could we have 
you know, dream to dream of a different basin and, and water and a functioning system, or is it too hard? Uh, I don't think it's too hard, and I don't think we can be defeated by this. And there's an enormous amount of passion and enthusiasm to improve our future. I mean, that's, you know, across Australia, and everyone has an interest in this subject. So we can't be defeated. Um, what I'd like to say is, you know, we... We need to work with what we've got and we add to it. And, and if it's not enough, let's keep adding. But rather than taking a big number up front, which could go horribly wrong, you know, we this is how we run our lives. We, we try things, as you said, it takes time. And I think, you know, this problem wasn't created just in the last 10 years in the drought. It has been something, even you've tracked back there with... You know, to the to the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So to expect communities to come along with you and change this in four or five years, it's just too much of an ask. And Australia, we need to we need to value the regional economies and what they do. And we need to have less people living on the eastern seaboard, but we need water to do it. So we but have to we, set are up. Are we going to England through irrigation it. always? No, are we I, looking I, at our other options? Are we? Well, Challenging the opportunities. There's plenty of other options out in, in regional Australia, and, and it does, you know, the whole clean energy, the wonderful tourism opportunities, um, the great lifestyle that that brings. So there's lots of opportunities. Um, you know, some of that infrastructure money we're talking about, it's valuable money to be spent in those communities and make what irrigation is there efficient. I don't see that we're going to be increasing our irrigation footprint for sure. It's already gone backwards, you know. I've run an irrigation corporation for six years now and we've lost 15% of our water permanently. 20% of that land is not irrigated now and probably never will be. So 20% of that land's gone out of irrigation and that's in what we call prime horticultural land. So, you know, rural Australia's made a massive adjustment already in this water reform process. Don't underestimate the changes that have been made. And we also, we love leaning out there and we want our future to be strong and we want, to, want the environment to be there with us. So I think... Rather than focusing on a number, there's a lot of environmental water already held, which is wonderful. Let's make sure we're using that really well, explain it in ways that we can all understand it, and then people will come along with you. So let's get the science out there and make sure it's proven and, and the assumptions and judgments are made clear. And as you said, let's have informed politicians because that's what scares me the most, that there, there will be ill-informed decisions made at a political level. Mm. John? Well... The, the thing that I think is that is that the science underneath the, the system we've got now is, is just uncertain. If I, as a scientist, having spent a lot of time working through it, I think I know where the truth sits. But if you're not a scientist, I don't know how the hell you'd know what you get. You're getting a pig, you're getting a solar pup, and uh, I think that's just not good enough. Um, so I think communities, with uh, from my experience working through with catchment management authorities in previous roles. They've been sidelined in, in many ways and communities have been sidelined in helping to have these conversations, resourcing it so you can have a sensible conversation with the best information available. Do you feel like one part of some of those communities has dominated that discussion? Well, I, I don't think we've had those conversations and I think we haven't had uh, a conversation where all the benefits of a healthy river system have been fully explored. The loss of uh, other opportunities, the CSIRO report... Recently, and you can argue over the numbers, but it's something like three to eight billion dollars worth of other opportunities that come about when you've got a healthy river in place. The one is an old ag science that really appeals to me, Cheryl, is that if we can show that we can grow our food in the Murray-Darling Basin with a river that's healthy, we'll be one of the few irrigation areas in the whole globe 
that can market its product as sustainably produced. That has got to be a huge future for Australia to be able to say that as Australians we eat food and we export food that is not from damaged rivers. That's Great. worth a lot. Uh, I agree. Uh, get the science right, bring communities along. I mean, what could be simpler, really? Well, <laughs> what could be simpler? It seems to be a long way out of the reach of... Spoken as a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, well, from a lawyer's perspective, I, I'd say, if we, I mean, it's not perfect, but we've got a, a good piece of legislation in the Water Act in place in terms of the framework that it provides and so forth. And keep in mind that when it was introduced in 2007 by John Howard, visionary perhaps, but it was received bipartisan support, it was supported by irrigators, it was supported by environmentalists. I mean, I went along with everyone to the Senate hearings and I sat there with my colleagues from the World Wildlife Fund, from ACF, from the Inland Rivers Network and so forth, and we all said, oh, we've got doubts about this, we've got doubts about that. But fundamentally, it's right. And everyone, everyone basically acknowledged the same sort of thing because what they could see was that that sort of strong leadership, that strong science-based independent authority was a really good way to, to take the, the, the thing forward and to break that terrible cycle from the past of sort of committing to policy initiatives and never quite getting there in terms of, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you always sort of want to take a step back from taking environmental sustainability seriously. So that, that's what's really required now, it seems to me, I mean, to, to really get on with that job. And I, I mean, hopefully, the period we've been talking about here uh, between um, the, the guide and the draft plan is, is an aberration and we can correct that now and, you know, get back onto that, the footing of the original vision we had back in 2007 when the whole regime was introduced. Yep, and look, I think we'll probably have to wrap up the talk there, but I think that's a, a good summary from everyone. And, and I do think, uh, you know, we are sort of clear on the volumes we need, and the discussion should be about how do we do that? How do we make that transition? How do communities come along? How do we change the makeup of the basin? And how do we get it so that we have an outcome? And unfortunately, um, it's a really tough conversation, and we don't seem to have the courage. Uh, in our leadership at the moment to take that on and it's, it's fairly disappointing. But that's where we're at. I don't think it's all doom and gloom. There's a lot of good things that we've seen along the way. Um, there's some great things that have been achieved in that process and our knowledge is a long way from where it was. Tim, Tim it's a nation-building opportunity. We just need to put it together and rebuild the heartland. Yep, and I think, you know, thank you for coming along to listen to this because it's important uh, that not only people that are involved but everyone... Uh, listens and, and has a think about this and actually engages with a problem that is an issue for all Australians, not just those in the basin. So I think we'll leave it there and, and go to questions now.